The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. Here at Christ Church, many of us hold to an eschatological position called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism, put simply, is the optimistic belief that the gospel will be victorious in history and that the nations of the earth will be largely one to Christ prior to his return in the end. This is not a new doctrine in church history. From Athanasius to Calvin, many have found this truth in their study of the scriptures. And as an evangelical church in the Reformed tradition, we too share this vision. While you may only hear a sermon specifically on this topic from time to time, this confident attitude and expectation permeates how we worship, how we raise our children, how we work, and how we live our lives in this community. But sometimes, even though this conviction undergirds much of our activity, we can forget this great hope and expectation in the busyness of our daily lives as husbands, wives, parents, children, students, and employees. It is one thing to intellectually agree that by God's grace, the world will be one someday, down the line, and in a future that you can barely imagine. It is another thing to live and work and fellowship, study, and evangelize, praying, and expecting to see this happen in front of your own eyes. If you visit the mission section on our website, you'll read that Christ Church, under the grace of God, desires to make Moscow a Christian town. This bold desire will not come to fruition with passivity. It will not happen without focused effort. It will take work. It will involve discomfort. It will be met with momentary failures and occasional disappointments. But if we truly are inheritors of this biblical confidence, we ought to count the costs, find Christ worth it all, and be audacious and intentional in our outreach to our neighbors, our coworkers, and to the thousands of students that flood into Moscow every fall. Jesus has purchased the nations of the earth with his blood, and he is worthy of them all. We know that as the waters cover the sea, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day fill the earth. So it is to this end, for the glory of God and the joy of all people, that we must labor in faith. You march through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that you are our Lord and we are your people. We confess that we so often lack the faith and hope that you not only require of us, but that you graciously provide for us. We know that the world hates you, but we can sometimes act like you are not in the business of changing hearts, that some people are just too difficult and too far from you. And the remarkable thing about all of this is that we ourselves were once estranged from you, yet we all have experienced your saving grace and the righteousness that you delight to give. We didn't deserve it, yet you loved us. So we ask this morning that you give us courage in the task that you have called us to, that as we raise our families and work and study, you would grant us opportunities to share the gospel, the good news of a great God who has sent his son so that those who are perishing in darkness would instead live eternally in your light. May all of our efforts rest in your sovereign grace and will. 
We confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 12, 28. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. It is on the basis of this good news that I am happy to declare that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Text this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. These are the words of God. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, Thou art the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the call uh, that you, you give to your saints and to your people. You call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. I pray that by your word this morning, you would do so in our midst, that we would grow by your word, we would be nourished by it, we would be convicted by it, and that we'd become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus through it. It's in his name and by the power of your spirit that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Uh, the pagan notion of God, either immunitizes God, meaning brings him really, really close, if you will, and thus, in a certain sense, turns everything into God, or the pagan notion of God transcend transcendentalizes God, puts God way off in some corner, remote corner of the universe, effectively putting him off limits to human comprehension, to human accessibility. If God is everything, then everything is God, and what's, what's the assurance that you are heard, loved, or saved? If everything is God, then this pulpit, this floor, your neighbor next to you is just as God as the next thing. And where's the hope of any, uh, hope of being heard in your prayers, loved by God, or saved? It flattens everything. You yourself are God, and so... Uh, that's as good as you're going to get in that view. And you're the problem, right? So who's going to deliver you from yourself? You see the problem. But the transcendentalist puts God so far off that only the right incantation, the right chain of mantras, the right series of fastings and self-abnegation, self-effort, uh, trances, diets, 
lining of, your sh of the chakras. Only through the right aligning of all these things can you ever hope to reach, quote-unquote, God. And so one view here puts God, put, uh, one view of God puts him so close that he's, in effect, useless. And the other puts him so far off that it's hopeless. You can never reach him. We see a distinguishing feature of the Christian faith is that we proclaim the assurance of salvation. We proclaim that through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can be assured that God loves you, that God hears your prayers, that you are, as John says in his epistle, that you are accepted in the beloved. And this is a unique feature of the Christian faith. Christians aren't left guessing if God hears their prayers. We aren't left crossing our fingers wishing that God will be gracious to us. Oh, please, 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 please don't squish me this time. The saints of God aren't cowering in a corner wondering what sort of mood God is in today. No, those who are born again are as certain of their standing with God and his love to them as they are that the sun will rise tomorrow. What I want to do is take a look at this text, this calling of the, of the apostle Nathaniel, the disciple Nathaniel. And I, I think what we'll see in it is that um, th this call of Nathaniel is less about the disciple, less about his obedience, and more about the one who has called him and the nature of the one who has called him, the Lord Jesus. So note that the, the verse preceding this section that we read this morning in verse 42 uh, we, we read that um, after the renaming of Simon to Cephas, or Petros, or Peter, which means stone there in verse 42, I'll read it quickly, and he brought, Andrew brought to him, brought Simon to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld Simon, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So we have this renaming of Simon that then sets off this next series of events. We have the unornamented call of Philip. Jesus says, follow me, and he, he goes. Not much more beyond that in the description. But he, he follows, and we're told uh, what Philip's hometown was. It was the same as Andrew and, and Peter's. And his first act as a disciple, which was to fetch Nathaniel, there in verse 45. And he finds Nathaniel. Philip goes to find Nathaniel and tells him, we found the Messiah. The one which Moses and the prophets had foretold, a one Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel is dubious that something as good as the Messiah could come out of Nazareth. Now think of it as uh, similar to uh, Moscow-Pullman, a little bit of a rivalry, a cross-border rivalry, where you'd have like our high school versus their high school, our college versus their college. Can anything good come from those... Washington State Cougars, they do have a better record, I think, but we won't get into that. So Nathaniel is a bit dubious that anything so good as the Messiah could come out of the town of Nazareth. But at Philip's insistence, you'll see that uh, Philip basically echoes the common uh, rabbi invitation, come and see, uh, to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel comes anyway. There in verse 46. And when Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he makes a seemingly odd pronouncement about Nathanael. There in verse 47, Nathanael's coming and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. That doesn't seem too out of the ordinary, right? That seems kind of, all right, that's an odd way to 
odd way to greet someone. But this prophetic declaration strikes home, and uh, Nathaniel is left dumbfounded at Jesus' discernment. And he asks, well, how, how'd you know? How'd you know that I was an Israelite with no guile, with no deceit, with no bait, no, no, no tomfoolery? And uh, I think it'd be helpful to look at as a, a reason why this would strike home for Nathaniel. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, which is a messianic passage, there in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah chapter 11, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. This is a messianic prophecy of what the Messiah would be like. And so Jesus greeting Nathanael with this discernment of what Nathanael's character and, and, and disposition and attitude was struck home for Nathanael. He says, How, how'd you know? What, what, what gives? How did you know this? And to, to that question, Jesus responds. He reveals that he saw what Nathanael was up to before Philip even called him. Being a true Israelite, I saw you under the fig tree. And if you look through the Old Testament, there's, there's a couple references to um, a, a peace and a, and a rest. And what a true Israelite should be is one who's resting and contemplating God's word, communing with God in prayer under the fig tree. And so to, in a sense, be that Jesus is telling Nathaniel, I heard your prayers. I saw your prayers from the Messiah. I heard your prayers from the Messiah. I heard your prayers to be delivered from your guilt, your sin, your guile, and God has heard your prayers. Now you realize that that would be Jesus making a divine claim. And that's enough, this, this declaration of Jesus to say that before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee, is enough to, to turn Nathaniel's world and his life Upside down. It's enough to persuade Nathaniel of Jesus' Messiahship. There in verse 49. He calls him Rabbi. He calls him the Son of God. He calls him the King of Israel. Jesus affirms his faith and says, you, you know, you do well to believe. This is good. And he says, but greater things are coming. I'm, I re reveal that greater things shall be seen by Nathanael. And then Jesus describes those greater things there in verse 51 by referencing, alluding to a story about the patriarch Jacob and a vision that he had once seen back in Genesis chapter 28. Now, this, this reference to what we oftentimes call Jacob's ladder, the, the angels, the open heaven with angels ascending and descending, is, is kind of a curious illusion. You know, it, it seems um, like why would that be significant here in the calling of Nathaniel? In the opening chapter of this gospel, as John is proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus, why would this ancient vision of the patriarch Jacob pertain to Nathaniel, pertain to these disciples that are being called. And this, this illusion, I think, is really well worth pursuing, well worth, worth looking at. So to recap that story back in Genesis 28, uh, if you remember, Jacob has tricked his father uh, and gotten the blessing, and Esau, his older brother, who's a hairy man, 
uh, out, out hunter man, and Jacob is described as a plain man dwelling in tents who doesn't see the sun too much. A little bit pasty and white, living in his mama's basement kind of thing. Uh, he's deceived his father, tricked Esau out of the, the blessing, and now he's fleeing for his life. He's leaving the promised land, the land promised to his, his grandfather Abraham. He's leaving the promised land of Canaan, not on sweet terms, but fleeing for his life in a self-inflicted exile, fleeing from his older brother Esau, who's, who's declared, you know, it's, it's, a, it's right that Jacob was named Jacob, which means heel grabber, supplanter, deceive, deceiver, one full of guile, which I'll come back to in a second. So he's fleeing, and on his way, he stops for the night in this wilderness place. And as, as you or I might, he takes a stone for a pillow, which oftentimes happen, I guess, when you're camping. You know, like, what, what am I sleeping on? But he takes a stone and, and uses it for his pillow. And while he's sleeping, he sees a vision, which is the one that Jesus alludes to here in our text. He, he sees a ladder uh, going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending upon it. And when Jacob awakens, he declares, truly, God is in this place. And he sets up the stone that was his pillow as a pillar, as a, as a monument, and says, if, if God, if you return me here, if you fulfill all these promises that God, God expressed to him in that vision, which is that uh, the same Abrahamic promise that he would make of him a great nation, he would build a great house through Jacob and through his seed. And Jacob says, if you indeed bring me back here, I'll give a tenth of my, everything I have to you. I will serve you. I will follow you. So he sets up this pillar. He anoints it with oil. And he changes the name of that place. There's name changing going on here. He changes the name of that place from Luz to Bethel, the, the house of God. And then years later, um, you remember he goes and falls in love and then gets tricked into marrying the older sister and has to work another seven years, so 14 years total in the house of Laban, and as he's returning back to the promised land after this, this exile, he's a great host full of you know, herds, uh, dozen, you know, a dozen boys, uh, uh, great host. He's returning to the promised land, and he wrestles with God at Peniel, if you recall, Genesis chapter 32. He meets a man at night, and he's wrestling with him, and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it's revealed that this man he's been wrestling with was God himself. And God says, I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel. God declares his name is going to be changed. And then a few chapters later, there in Genesis 35, in the closing scenes of Jacob's part of the story, we see that he has finally returned to this place, Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. And there, God renews the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, and it's where he formally renames him from Jacob to Israel. And then after God appears to Jacob, it's, it's, it's a curious turn of phrase in, in the Hebrew. It says that God then goes up or ascends from Jacob. So that's the, that's the, uh, the context, if you will, of the reference that Jesus is making here in the calling of Nathaniel. So what does, why does John recount this interaction with Nathaniel. First of all, I think, remember the preceding context of this section. Jesus has been about, he's been going about, he's changed some names. 
he's renamed Simon to Peter, which means a stone. In other words, Jesus has set up a stone, like Jacob had done long ago. Jesus tells Nathanael, I think this greeting of Nathanael makes more sense in light of the story of Jacob from the Old Testament. He, he tells Jacob, hey, you're not a Jacob, you're an Israel. Uh, you're not one full of guile, you're an Israelite, a true Israelite. And it's curious that the only time that someone is referred to as an Israelite in the Gospel of John is right here. Nathaniel is the only one referred to in the Gospel of John as an Israelite. All the rest are referred to as Jews. So that, that pops out from the page. So Nathaniel, is, is, is Jesus greets him by saying that this, what seems like kind of a, a curious greeting, he says, hey, you're, not, you're a true Israel. You're a true Israelite, not a Jacob. And even some have suggested that uh, it could easily be translated, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. Nathaniel declares Jesus, after this uh, encounter, he declares Jesus to be rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. But then you'll see Jesus then calls himself uh, the son of man. And then there's one more layer to all the name changing that's going on in this passage. Uh, John, John's gospel is the only one that refers to Nathaniel as Nathaniel. In the other gospels, when the, uh, when the disciples are listed, uh, they're uh, Philip is always followed by Bartholomew. Uh, and so here you have Philip being called, and then immediately following you have Nathaniel. It's unexpected. It should be, wait, Bartholomew, which Nathaniel and Bartholomew are basically are, are the same person. Bartholomew is basically his last name. So John highlights the name changing going on in this passage by using the unexpected name for Bartholomew, which is Nathaniel. In other words, Jesus is a name changer. But only a father has the right to name someone. And only God has the right to rename someone. Think of what John says in, his, in, the, in Revelation chapter 2, 17. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone. And in the stone... A new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth, saving he that receiveth it. Jesus has come to change names. Jesus has come to rename you and me. Ephesians, Paul, Paul says this, that uh, of whom, from whom the Father God, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That God is the only one who has the right to rename, uh, to rename us. The human race, if we were to have a last name, uh, the human race, the, our last name would be Adamson's. We'd be descended from Adam. But the family of Adam, Adamson's, our family happens to be under the wrath and judgment of God. And we are culpable for that rebellion in the garden. Our family was once given the title and the deed to the entire planet, and our great-great-grandfather, Adam, forfeited it. We are in exile. Our family is in exile from the garden that we were first given, that we first own. We forfeited the deed to it back in Eden, and we are cut off from heaven. And thus, 
our lot is hell. Those who are named Adamsons, their lot, their destiny is hell. So who will bring us back to God? Who will change our name? Who will restore us to our inheritance? And I think the fact that Jesus is, this, this text highlights all the name changing going on is not the only feature in this passage. The name changing is, of course, a divine prerogative. It's a divine right. But a far off God is no good for sinners. A God who is far off can't save us. A, a God that is uh, distant and unable to come and rescue us and save us is a God who won't come to save us. And I think one of the key things that John is drawing our attention to in this whole chapter is building up to Christ's divinity and his humanity. What John is drawing your attention to is to see that this long-awaited Messiah, this word who has made flesh, this word who was God, who was with God, this, and you look through this passage, Jesus is given multiple divine names in this passage. The begotten, the only begotten of the Father, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, the word, the, the, the rabbi, the, the king of Israel, the son of God, the son of man. All of this is leading up to the, the fact that this Messiah has come. He is the divine Son of God. And then there at the end of the chapter is this wonderful, glorious promise that the, the, the divine Savior who has come, the Messiah, the anointed one, is one of us. Is a man. And it's drawing our attention to this tension that we'll see throughout the whole book of John. This tension between Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. Henry Law once well stated, the vision of the ladder, Jacob's ladder, shows us Jesus in the miracle of his person, a man without ceasing to be God and God without scorning to be man. Jesus has come to, what we see in this passage is Jesus has come to be the one sent by the Father to change our names. To give us new names. To adopt us into God's family. And, and Nathaniel is, is dead on when he sees in Jesus a true rabbi. When he hears this prophetic declaration that, uh, that Jesus has discerned and heard his prayers before Philip even came to Nathaniel. Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. I heard your prayers, your desires. And Nathaniel's dead on when he sees in Jesus a true rabbi, a true prophet, a true priest, a true king. Nathaniel is indeed a faithful Israelite. And notice this too, that Nathaniel, Jesus calls Nathaniel and says, here's a true Israelite. And then as it dawns and as Nathaniel trusts in Christ and believes that this indeed is the Messiah, notice what Nathaniel calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi. He calls him the son of God. And he says, you're the king of Israel. Do you realize what Nathaniel is saying there? It's not just a nice little title to give Jesus. Nathaniel's been declared to be a true Israelite. 
And Nathaniel responds then by saying, and you're my king. And you're the one I will follow. And you're the one I will submit to. And you're the one who shall save us. Nathaniel is indeed a faithful Israelite who has longed for the promised salvation. But Jesus rushes in here with this allusion to Jacob's ladder for a very particular reason. He makes it plain that the way in which salvation is going to come for Israel is not through the revolution or the overthrow of the Romans immediately. It's not going to be, so to speak, an earthly, an earthbound kingdom. He's making it plain that the way in which he will fulfill those offices of being the prophet, the priest, the king of Israel, the way he will fulfill those offices is by reuniting earth and heaven. He's come not just to be uh, God in our midst, but to be God who took on our flesh. And not just to be another one of us, but to be the divine son of God. Uh, in Eden, there was what C.S. Lewis called, if you've read his book, uh, A Great Divorce. It's a wonderful description of what took place in Eden. That heaven and earth that were once united there in Eden, we were cut off. We were divorced. We were separated from all the glory, all the blessing, all the joy, all the promises of God our Father. We were on the outs. We were cut off from God and from grace. And in order to return to Eden, the debt had to be repaid. And it had to be paid by a son of Adam, a son of man. And while Nathaniel was persuaded to believe that because of Jesus' prophetical declaration, that Je he, was, he was persuaded to believe by that, that Jesus was, was declaring that while, I, while you were under the, the fig tree, I saw you, I, I heard you. That persuades him to believe by that prophetical declaration. Jesus says, just you wait. Just hold on a second here. I want to expand the smallness of your vision. I want to expand the scope of what it means for me to be the promised Messiah. Jesus and he says, greater things you're going to see. And he expands the, the smallness of Nathaniel's vision. Jesus has come to suffer. He had come to suffer as one of us. But as God to rise from the dead. Or as the Belgic Confession puts it, Jesus was true God in order to conquer death by his power. And true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. That when Christ died... A son of Adam died. A son of man died for you and for me. And so in Jesus Christ, we have a true son of man who is also the son of God. And the great marvel which Nathaniel would see is that reunion of heaven and earth in Christ. And this promise that was given, that this vision that Jacob had seen all those thousand, thousands of years ago, Jesus alludes to it and says, remember that vision that Jacob had at Bethel, the house of God, where he saw angels ascending and descending, 
where the prayers of God's people would ascend into heaven and God's blessing and promise would come down. Jesus says, I'm that bridge. I am that ladder. I am that tower. I am that one who's reuniting lost, exiled man to God Almighty. You realize the implications of what Jesus is saying here is that through him, our prayers in the name of Jesus ascend up to heaven. When you pray in the name of Jesus, your prayers don't just hit the ceiling. Your prayers through Christ ascend to God and he hears your prayers and he answers your prayers. And not only that, not only are your prayers heard, but the blessings of his grace and his mercy descend. The ministry of his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness and every blessing that he delights to bestow upon his children are now poured out upon you through Christ. If you think back to the Tower of Babel, the, the rascals who were trying to build the Tower of Babel thought, let's build a tower whose head reaches into the heavens, whose height reaches into heaven. They tried to build a tower into heaven, hoping that they, by their own might, by their own ability, by their own uh, guts and glory, could ascend into the heights of God. And God, of course, confounded them. They were denied. Heaven was closed. And that was in Genesis 11. But the account in Genesis 28 of Jacob's ladder is a striking one because it, it, it makes mention of the fact that the head of this ladder reached into heaven. Heaven wasn't closed through this tower. Heaven was made open to man through this tower, through this ladder. In Jacob's ladder... It is God himself who sets up a tower into an open heaven. Jesus, in effect here, this, this whole call of Nathaniel, this unexpected name changing that's going on in this passage, the naming of Peter as a stone to call to mind for the, for the Israelite reader, for the Jewish reader, to think of a, another stone that was set up alongside another tower, another ladder that was set up leads us to the point of Jesus saying, and you will see a great wonder. You will see through the Son of Man prayers being offered up to God and heard by God and the blessings and promises and grace and forgiveness of God brought near to man through and only through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in effect, says, I'm the only way back to God. And he says, I am that ladder. And that ladder is your assurance of prayers heard and salvation received. For those who look to Jesus, he brings your prayers and your tears and your guilt and your shame and your cries for deliverance. Jesus Christ because he suffered, bled, and died as a son of Adam, a son of man, 
He is a perfect mediator who can bring all your tears, all your requests, all your groans and sorrows and your guilt and stand before God, the righteous one, the mediator. And it is through Christ and only Christ that he brings down all of God's grace, goodness, and promises to you. Nathaniel indeed saw great things. You realize that Jesus' declaration here, his allusion here to being that ladder, that one who would reunite heaven with earth, is a marvelous claim. And it should give great hope and assurance to those who see in Christ, who trust in Christ, as the true Son of God, the true King of Israel. Now, now note this. I want this to, to land in a very practical way. I, I presume that this room is full of those who profess faith in Christ. Do you believe that through Christ, God answers your prayers? Do you believe that when you pray in faith, God hears you? That when you, maybe for the first time in your life, when you asked him for salvation, you know that he hears that prayer. When you call upon him for deliverance from various circumstances or through various trials, when you cry to him in the misery and the trials, the difficulties you face, do you realize that God is a kind father who hears And this allusion to this ladder is, is marvelous because what was promised to Jacob there at Bethel was that God would build him a house. God would build a, a house whose, whose members were as many as the sand of the sea. And Jesus is saying, I've come to finish the house. I've come to fill it up. I have a friend that um, a couple years ago, about 10, 11 years ago, uh, went on a trip overseas to a Muslim country and uh, met, a, met a young man there and um, shared the gospel with this, this Muslim. And uh, then a year or two later, uh, this, this young man had come to the States and, and uh, my friend and a group of, a group of us invited him uh, over for Christmas. It was Christmas time, and we spent some time with him, and we prayed with him. We once again shared the gospel with him. We prayed that God would um, have him come to see uh, the one true God, come to believe the one true God. And as a group of friends, we just continued to pray for this, this young man year after year. Well, this week, got a little notification on Facebook Messenger. This young man says, just want you to know, this Sunday, today, I'm being baptized. And our, our group of friends are, of course, rejoicing and just uh, overjoyed at the, uh, this, this young man 
coming to Christ after 10 plus years of praying. And why I share that is that so often we forget that God delights to answer your prayers. Even later in the book of John, he tells us, Ask whatsoever you will in my name, and it shall be done for you. And we like to rush in and say, But, 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 there's got to be an asterisk there, God. There's got to be some borders there. We don't want people asking for Lamborghinis, of course. But do you realize that those who see in Christ the Savior of the world, the true King of Israel, do you know what you're going to ask for? You're going to ask that the King of Israel be exalted in all of his glory. You're going to ask that in your life and in the lives of those around you that he would be magnified and made much of and that those who are lost would come to faith in him. And you would wrestle like Jacob did in the, the darkest night to see the blessing come down. And you know that only, it's only through Christ and only in Christ that heaven is open, our prayers are heard, and the blessings are poured out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, you have extended to us grace and mercy and forgiveness. You have brought, you've come near, you've become one of us through your son, Jesus Christ. We know that in him and him alone we have salvation. We know that in him and him alone our prayers are heard. We know that through him and him alone the blessings of salvation and life and everything necessary for life and godliness are given through him. That when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to man. Lord, we thank you that in the call of Nathaniel, we see not Nathaniel, but we see the glory of the one who called him, the true king of Israel the latter ascending to heaven and descending back down to earth. We pray that you would grant that we would have faith and boldness to pray bold prayers. And we thank you for pouring out upon us innumerable blessings that we don't deserve. Amen. Please be seated. So this is a family table, so I feel like this is an appropriate place to give a family announcement. Uh, so Lenora, myself, and Eleanor, Lazarus, and Vera are very pleased to announce that we have added an addition to the Knight family of Boaz Leland Knight yesterday evening. <laughs> yep. uh, Lenora and Boaz are doing great. Both are super cute. Uh, Boaz has got a lot of great hair also. With some fuzzy ears with a little bit of a night nose. So he still looks great, but um, yeah, uh, doing really well. Uh, born at 8.50 uh, p.m. last night, and yeah, we're doing great. So thank you for your prayers, and I'm sure you'll give us some future love and support. So look forward to that as well. <laughs> so in this passage in John 1, Jesus gathers his first disciples, and we know this story well enough that sometimes we can take it for granted. Of course, Jesus has disciples. There were 12 of them, and there was one rotten egg. But we can skip over the basic question, why does Jesus even have disciples? In the section right before this, John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we know that this will happen to him at the crucifixion. 
if that's Jesus' mission, why not go directly to the cross? Why the detour with these disciples? And we know they're going to be a hassle. The answer is God the Father does not merely want sinners forgiven, but he desires forgiven sinners to become his children and faithful ones at that. John 1.12 reads, All who did receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the will of God. Jesus was sent not just to deal with our bad behavior, but so that we can come follow him back to the Father. This is the difference between thinking of God as a corrections officer and thinking of God as a father. Suppose, hopefully this won't happen, that you got in trouble with the law and you get locked up at Lataw County Jail for the night. The next morning, two men wait for you at the side door on 6th Street. The correction officer says, you're free. I don't want to see you again. And the father says, he's right. I don't want to see you here again. And son, I'll see you back home for dinner. Which man is like God in the story? The dad, of course. Both men deal with the offense, but the father's aim is to restore glorious fellowship. That's why Jesus did the hassle of the disciples of these very annoying and very evil sinners. That we may follow him and so be restored to our father. And so... Be a disciple. Be a child of God. And when you follow Jesus, he leads to his father's table. And he says, come and see. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So a uh, quick reminder before the charge. And the reminder is, come to the uh, ice cream and psalm sing this afternoon, today at 4 p.m. over at Friendship Square. I mean... Really, it's ice cream, and it's psalm saying, today, 4 p.m., you should be there. We're going to be there. Uh, and the charge is, um, is actually, a, as Ben was talking about this ladder from heaven, uh, yesterday I had a, a service project with the six or seven other guys uh, in the morning, which involved ladders, painting, uh, resealing a log home, and I brought two ladders uh, eight foot and a rickety 16 foot ladder that I brought and quickly realized that these were too short for the job to get way to the tippy top and thankfully there was a good 40 foot ladder to get all the way but then thinking about that uh, try to have a ladder to get to heaven right? try to find a ladder to get all the way to heaven what project do you have to get all the way there what deep hole can you get out of? And here's the good news. Jesus is that ladder who's come down all the way right to where you are. And he is the one who will bring you all the way to the Father. So receive with believing hearts the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. amen.